I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter on the International Rescue Committee's 2021 Emergency Watch List Report, we have with us today David Miliband, who's the president and CEO of the IRC. In the emergency watch list, you talk about the triple threat of COVID, climate change, and conflict, which threatens 200 million people. Tell us about that. So every year, we, as an international humanitarian aid agency, we were founded by Albert Einstein in the 1930s to bring refugees to America. And now we're a global humanitarian charity working in 200 field sites in 40 war-torn countries. Thinking strategically about our emergency preparedness is really important. And so our emergency watch list has traditionally been an internal management tool. Uh, But this year, we've tried to have a more public-facing document. We've looked at 85 different indicators of state stress and of individual stress on communities and individuals. And then brought that together with the anecdotal evidence from our own staff around the world to pick 20 countries that we think present the greatest risk of worsening humanitarian crisis in 2021. You cited COVID, climate and conflict as the three drivers. And I'd actually turn it around and say that the report makes clear how conflict, climate and then COVID on top are the big drivers of humanitarian need, a 40% increase according to the UN on last year. And here's the the critical point that I'd love your listeners to remember and that we can explore in our conversation today. These 20 countries represent 10% of the world's population, but they, at the same time, represent 86% of the world's people in humanitarian need and over 80% of the world's internally displaced and of the world's refugees. And so if you say to people, look, there's 200 million people in humanitarian need, in need of humanitarian assistance, that sounds like an absolutely unscalable mountain that's in front of us. If you say, look, there are 20 countries that represent 80% of the world's extreme poverty and extreme distress, and we need a different approach to tackle the drivers of humanitarian need in those countries, it becomes a more manageable proposition because Yemen, the number one on the list, has got a particular set of issues. Every humanitarian emergency is a political emergency. That's different from the situation in Afghanistan. It's different from the situation in Burkina Faso. And I think that there's a double purpose, therefore, in this emergency watch list. It's to sound the alarm that 200 million of our fellow citizens around the world are in enormous need and that there are structural as well as contingent drivers of their distress but also to say this needs renewed attention and is addressable if we have the uh, imagination, will, creativity, politics uh, to get this done. So, David, it's 20 countries and it's a startling fact that it's, you know, 85% of the people who are really in need are in those 20 countries. 
But these countries are, you know, like you said, they're Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, and now places like Ethiopia are emerging. We're also in Europe and in the United States, we're tackling COVID right now, and we're all really dealing with what's going on at home. Do we have the appetite for trying to solve these problems? And what does the IRC do in this climate where, you know, countries like the United States are, are really turning inward right now, despite an administration change that says we're going to try to rebuild our role in the world with our alliances? Well, look, the revealed preference of governments, and to that extent, the revealed preference of voters is to turn away from big problems, not to address them. But that just means it's all the more important that NGOs and the private sector and think tanks and universities, the civil society more generally, it's all the more important that those of us who are not in government show the leadership that's necessary, forge the solutions that are necessary, show how malnutrition, 50 million under fives around the world are acutely malnourished under five-year-olds, and 80% of them get no help, that is not something that is an unaddressable problem, an unmanageable problem. It's actually something that can be tackled, but it's going to need civil society, private sector, NGOs to step up and lead the way. And I always say to people, look, if you want big change, you need government leadership, you need business and NGO innovation, you need mass mobilization. But they don't necessarily come in that order. Sometimes there isn't the government leadership coming first. Sometimes they lead from behind, to coin a phrase. And so I think it's really important that we don't spend our time debating whether or not we're going to achieve this. We set out to achieve it. We're a, a solutions-focused NGO. Often we're driven by needs, but I always emphasize to people, we're in the solutions business. You know, yesterday I was on Zoom calls in Yemen and in Ethiopia. Ethiopia, you mentioned rightly for the really dangerous situation that exists there at the moment. And our aid workers are about helping people make change in their own lives. That's our mission. And it seems to me that we're in a situation where we've got policies and finance that's behind the problems, but we've got NGO practice on the ground that's actually ahead of the problems. And we've got to bridge that gap. And part of the job of the watch list is to help further understanding of the nature of the problem but also to challenge governments to do something about it. Now, you mentioned the US, and we're a global organization, but we're headquartered in the United States. There's obviously a big change coming. We've had an administration for four years that's been trying to cut the aid budget by 30%, cutting the number of refugees coming into the country, resiling on commitments in international law to the treatment of asylum seekers. We've got an administration coming in with a rather detailed, by American standards, program that it set out in advance of the election. And the COVID crisis gives us an absolutely telling need to address these international issues, not just the domestic issues. And I don't know about you, but I think in some ways the public are a bit ahead of the politicians on this. You can't fight COVID on the home front without fighting it internationally. Now, of course, the preponderance of attention has to be on the home front. And my goodness, the US has made a bit of a mess of this. So has the UK, I'm sad to say. But if you're not willing to address it internationally, not just through the WHO, but including through the World Health Organization, you're not going to address it and get back to any kind of normality. And so I think there's a real, there's a real responsibility, if not yet an opening, um, to make a difference on these issues. So what are the most pressing challenges that the IRC and other NGOs are going to have to focus on in the aftermath of COVID-19 as we start to vaccinate people? And, you know, as your report points out, there are some really urgent needs. I think it's really important that people understand the geography of poverty is changing. 
conflict is now the biggest driver of extreme poverty. Right. It's not some kind of development economics question about markets. We know that about 45% of the world's extreme poor now live in conflict or fragile states, 60% by 2030. So in China, in India, in many other countries, you've seen reductions of poverty in stable states, but in war-torn states, poverty is rising. Nigeria now has more extreme poor than India. And so the conflict driver speaks to issues of impunity in the way conflict is conducted, the a retreat from international law by great powers, the gridlock in the UN Security Council. That's a political issue. And what are we going to do about it? We're, we are trying to negotiate access to people in need where conflict parties make it impossible to safely deliver humanitarian aid. Sometimes they are avowed in the way they put bureaucratic constraints on humanitarian aid delivery. That's a problem in Yemen at the moment, a problem in northeast Nigeria. Sometimes it's less explicit and it's just dangerous. And the changing nature of conflict means that we need new tools to reach people in need. Uh, so that's what we're doing in respect of conflict. In respect of climate, we've changed our mission statement to recognize how the climate crisis is a driver of forced displacement, not directly, but often indirectly, because climate increases resource stress, resource stress increases the likelihood of conflict. And from our point of view, there are some mitigating measures we can take. For example, in respect of our agricultural livelihoods programs, we try and bake in a climate dimension. Now, thirdly, COVID, we've been absolutely clear that it makes no sense to have some estimates 13, some estimates 15, some estimates $20 trillion of help in G20 countries for economic renewal to tackle the collateral damage of COVID but much more feeble attempts internationally. There's been nothing like the G20 response after the financial crisis of 2008-9 to try to help the poorest countries in the world. And um, we're arguing that on the ground, you can see that the economic collateral damage of COVID is greater than the health risk of COVID directly itself. We probably wouldn't have said this six or eight months ago, but we've got to make that case for sustaining our programs in the midst of COVID, keeping our staff safe, uh, which we're doing, keeping our health facilities going, but then saying there needs to be an economic response. Now, that then flows through to the question of the vaccines, where there's been some debate. There's been big investment in creating a vaccine, public and private investment. There's been a moderate amount of uh, discussion about the financing of a vi vaccine for poor countries, but none of the estimates I've seen expect more than 20% vaccination in the course of next year in lower and middle income countries. And that's a, a real problem. And there's been next to zero discussion about how you deliver a vaccine to some of the communities that we serve where there isn't a proper functioning health system. And so that's the agenda that we're pursuing in that regard. You talk about in your report a concerted effort to invigorate fidelity to the laws of war. And you point out that that's really important. Explain that to me and how that could really change conflict. Well, it's interesting that if you look at the Syria crisis, the historic average from the end of the Second World War till effectively now is that for every civilian killed in a war, there have been five people displaced. In the Syria conflict, it's the ratio is one to 25. And one of the contributors to the increasing dispersal of people through conflict, both as internally displaced and as refugees crossing into neighboring states, is the increasing brutality of conflict and the what I call the age of impunity. Impunity is when a coached load of children in northern Yemen get their coach 
hit by a missile sent by the Saudi-led coalition. Impunity is when two of our aid workers in northwest Syria get targeted from the air by Russian-Syrian forces and get killed. That is the age of impunity. And the laws of war that were set up after the Second World War, they didn't create some kind of golden age of safety for civilians or safety for aid workers, but they created a, a set of benchmarks. What we've seen in the last, really, uh, since 2006, is this rise of impunity. And that impunity contributes to humanitarian crisis. The, the conflicts are bloodier. Civilians are now 70% of the victims of war. That's partly res- about non-state actors, but it's also about state actors and the way that they are behaving. And the changing nature of conflict, intrastate conflict, not interstate conflict. There's very few interstate wars today, but intrastate conflict, civil wars, uncivil wars, actually. I mean, this is, this is where hospitals become targets of, of armies. Exactly. Right? Well, exactly. And so what we see, if you look at the countries that we're talking about, the war-affected uh, states, conflict-affected states, obviously uh, Yemen, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, the targeting of Kabul University recently, Somalia, you name it, there's a conflict dynamic in most of these watch list countries. There's a climate dynamic of the 10 most climate-affected countries in the world, according to the Notre Dame University Index, seven of them are in the top 10 of our watch list. So you can see that there's an overlap between the conflict, the climate crisis, and then the COVID layered on top with a, a much more contingent impact. And so what we're treating the symptoms of political failure. And there's a diplomatic failure. There's a long-term climate failure, obviously. And there is this much more recent 2020 failure to mobilize an international effort on the COVID front that is in any way appropriate to the scale of the pandemic. And of course, that just creates this situation where the richer parts of the world were first into the COVID crisis. They're also going to be the first out. And the danger is that the poorer countries of the world, which didn't start the crisis, end up paying the greatest price for it. So, David, when it comes to, you know, the laws of war, how do you get those who are waging asymmetric war to comply with the laws of war? How do you get those who have nothing to, you know, get vaccines? And how do you, you know, get people who climate's the last thing on their mind to to start paying attention to climate? I mean, these are such tremendous problems you're facing with tremendous obstacles. And I know that the IRC, you know, is pre- is presenting real solutions, but you you have to feel like at times you're you're you know climbing a mountain with a huge boulder on your shoulder. Well, look, there's a lot in that. So let me break that up a bit. The middle question you asked was about how does um how do you get vaccines to people in, in war zones? That's actually relatively, of the three questions you asked, how do you get people to obey the laws of war? How do you get vaccines to people? How do you solve the climate crisis? The second one is actually the easiest of the three questions. And we know that the model of health delivery that's built on the US or the UK or Switzerland is not going to work in Yemen or Afghanistan or, or, or elsewhere. You can't just talk about strengthening the health system. You've got to work where there isn't a system. And just to give you one example, community health workers who are people drawn from the community flip the switch on how health is delivered. Instead of expecting people to get to health centers, you take the health to people. And when it comes to tackling malnutrition, when it comes to delivering vaccinations, when it comes to TBAs and malaria, what's called community case management, community health worker effort has actually been shown to be 
highly effective and a high degree of value for money. And that's what we'll be working on with organizations like Gavi, the Global Alliance on Vaccines, in order to deliver the vaccine. Now, let me just talk a bit about your first question, which is what you do to really sustain the laws of war in a situation where state and non-state actors are increasingly ignoring it. I mean, the first is you do argue and you do make the case, you advocate that those countries that say they want to abide by the law of war actually do so. And the position of the US and others is very important in that. But here's here's my argument. I, I spoke at the World Economic Forum last January about precisely this issue. And I, and I made four or five points. One, you bear witness to what's happening. And it's really important that the children who died in the coach bombing in northern Yemen, that no one can bring them back. But the shame and the disgrace that's associated with that attack needs to be brought to a global audience. Secondly, you use NGOs to document, but also to incentivize governments to make a difference. So a German NGO has documented the abuses of the Syrian regime against its opponents, including the the impunity. That's been picked up by the German government. That's important. Thirdly, the private sector has an important role to play. The examples of private companies who've been willing to stand up against the abuse of their own products is important and is part of this and should be. I argued in my Davos speech, look, arms manufacturers should be saying that they don't intend the arms that they produce to be used to break international law and attack children. They should be standing up for this. And if they're not willing to stand up for it together, then the financiers who support them should be standing up for it. There's got to be some engagement there. And that can sound high-minded and idealistic. But I cited the example, uh, the related example of American Airlines refusing to transport illegally detained people in the U.S., by the immigration authorities. The private sector has a role in either facilitating or standing up against the abuse of law. Fourthly, international institutions matter. There have been UN inquiries. They need to be given teeth. They need to be followed through. So just to give you an example of that, in the case of the bombings of hospitals in northwest Syria, the UN did do an inquiry. It did point the finger. They'd be promised to set up to have an envoy for this. That person hasn't yet been appointed. So there's an international name and shame element to this. And then finally, I think it's important to to say that countries that want to uphold the international system have to show that they mean business. Magnitsky sanctions have been mentioned in this uh, connection absolutely rightly. And the EU has shown its willingness to use trade, aid, other powers. I think that's important. And it's not about Western kind of self-congratulation. It's about using power that exists to try to defend those without power. In your report, you talk a lot about the plight of women and girls. Can you tell me about that and how the IRC plans to address that in 2021? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's it's very striking. Two thirds of our clients are women and girls. They bear the multiple disadvantages or inequalities in conflict. We know that in emergency situations, violence against women and girls goes up, early marriage goes up forced early marriage goes goes up. And so inequalities of power, of opportunity that exist in stable states are then magnified in emergency and conflict situations. I mean, our approach to this is both micro and macro. The micro approach is to say, you've got to work on prevention. That includes working with men and boys, but you've also got to work with survivors. 
And that takes resources. And at the moment, 0.21% of the humanitarian budget, I think I'm right in saying, goes on gender-based violence. I mean, that's a total disgrace. Well, it's incredible when you think about it, because this isn't a new problem. This is a problem that's documented across global health issues. It's violent issues. If you had a dollar for every word of every politician's speech about gender-based violence, you'd you'd actually have more money than is actually spent on it. That's right. (laughs) But the point I want to make to you and to your audience is that actually, at the micro level, there's quite good experience of what does work on prevention. What does work in helping? Yeah, we have a lot of evidence of programs that work. Yeah. And a lot of real success. And that's important. And they are context specific. It includes, by the way, um, NGOs and public organizations getting their own house in order. I mean, I'm very proud in Afghanistan, 44% of our staff are now women. Including up to management level, local local stuff. So we've we've also got to get our own house in order. We have our own gender action plan, which is published on our uh, website. So part of what you do, obviously, is also empowering local populations and hiring them. Correct. We like to. Yes, we certainly try to do so, and we've got pretty tough targets for how we want to do better. So at the micro level, there's a series of things, but there's also the macro level, and the macro level has to be to say that. Every UN target should have baked into it a target for the disaggregated impact on women and girls. In the Sustainable Development Goals, that should be highlighted, not just as a single pillar among 17, but across health or education or income. There needs to be a disaggregated target in respect of women and girls. Every UN appeal should have properly targeted efforts for women and for uh, girls. And unless you're willing to hold yourselves accountable... I don't think we're going to make the progress. So there's a micro effort that we do around the world. There's a macro effort that we do through our advocacy and campaigning. We've also said that we will not be a successful humanitarian organization unless we're a feminist organization. And I think it's just worth saying what that means. What it means is taking seriously the inequalities of power that exist in the communities that we work in and in the sector that we work in and trying to address them deliberately and proactively in our work. It's not a a sort of trying to be glib and make a statement. It's about recognizing that if we're serious about meeting the needs of our clients, we've got to be serious about the extra inequalities, especially inequalities of power that are faced by women and girls. What needs to happen to get to that point? I mean, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, right, about women and girls, that if, you know, you had a dollar for every politician that talks about this, you'd be able to fund it. What really needs to happen to get this implemented? I think that it's going to have to be taken out of the basket of quote unquote special interest. It's going to have to be in the same way that environment policy has to not just be the matter for the environment minister, it has to be for the finance minister and the prime minister. So the issue of how you redress inequalities faced by women and girls has to go from being something that is taken on by the, you know, equalities minister and is actually picked up at leadership level. And I think there has been some change in that. Justin Trudeau, significant. Jacinda Ahern, significant. France actually has a feminist aid policy. Sweden has made progress in this area. And so I think that there is a, I don't like to say mainstream, because that's become a kind of blah word that's lost its bite and meaning. But I'm very, very struck that until we can get accountability baked in to the commitments that countries and international institutions make, we're not going to get the incentives right, lower down the bureaucracy. And so 
that that's my that's our approach to it. We, we're trying to do the right thing in our own organization, but we're also trying to advocate that there needs to be a structural change of approach from the top level. So there's a lot of organizations in the United States that are behind you on this, you know, including my own CSIS has done work in this space in our global health program with Steve Morrison. What are you going to do with the incoming Biden administration to suggest implementing these kinds of policies? And really what you're suggesting is making this, you know, a broad based policy across government. And how, how are you going to talk to the Biden administration about this? Well, I think there are two or three things that are very significant there. First of all, in the US, you have this highly politicized debate about birth control, about family planning, about a series of other issues that basically flips from one administration to the next. So there's a series of commitments that the Biden administration have made that will change US policy. So let's recognize that, but put that to one side. I think there are two or three things. First of all, everything has to be seen through the lens of COVID. COVID is the top priority for the administration coming in nationally. But we've got to say that internationally, COVID is also the way into some of these bigger issues that I'm raising. How do you get vaccines in war-torn areas? How do you change the aid balance between accountability to donors and accountability to clients? How do you ensure that the drift towards extreme poverty being concentrated in conflict-faced states is addressed? How do you address inequalities faced by women and girls? So the first is use COVID as an entry point to these bigger debates. Secondly, I think that your question is about gender inequality, I think, across the piece. I think the second thing to say is to recognize that this has to be an across-the-board approach, not just a marginal approach. And we're engaging with transition teams in the appropriate way. Uh, We've put our own ideas out there. And I think that's important. Thirdly, I think there is room for a different kind of bargain between big international donors and the international aid sector. Uh, There was something called the Grand Bargain that was proposed at the 2016 World Humanitarian Summit, but it's never been followed through. And so there's unfinished business from the time before the Trump administration started trying to cut the overseas aid budget that I think would make a difference. Now, I always say we're dealing with the symptoms and you need diplomacy to deal with the causes. And that's where I think that there's a very, there's a great hope for a much more engaged America when it comes to global problems, not trying to be the world's policeman, quote unquote, but trying to recognize that with power comes responsibility. And the US has a lot of power and it should be showing a lot more responsibility. Final question, David. In your report, the top 10 countries at risk for further humanitarian disaster in 2021, I'll read them out. Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, Burkina Faso, South Sudan, Nigeria, Venezuela, and Mozambique. What is the thread that runs through all of them? What stands out to you? I think that the thread is in a way, simple to say and hard to achieve. The thread is that there's a failure of politics. We're not talking about natural disaster that's just come from the heavens and blighted these 10 countries by accident. And when I say politics, I mean the following. Fragile states are fragile, above all, because they haven't built the political institutions to allow for the sharing of power. And it's the sharing of power that in the end allows countries to achieve stability and forge compromise that makes for healthy development. And I think that 
that is the, the the red thread that is in this. Now, that's a very high faluting way of thinking about it. So let me balance that by also saying that each of these countries are countries of enormous inequality. It's not that everyone's poor in these countries. It's that there's a large number of poor people who are getting completely left behind. And in some cases, they're being left behind by the state. In some cases, they're being left behind by non-state actors. And that's the reason that they should be a cause for global responsibility, not just local responsibility. And I suppose, I mean, I said to you before the show that it's better not to have the questions and sometimes you don't know the answer and sometimes a question makes you try and think of an answer that is coherent. But I would point to that, that there's a macro element about politics, which is deep and structural. There's a micro element about the inequalities that exist within these uh, countries. But then there's, I think, this point. The problems in these countries, the the connecting thread is they're not going to be solved by internal resources alone. They're going to take external resources in the broader sense, not just financial resources, but political uh, resources as well. And I suppose that's why we're appealing for interest and engagement. You know, my organization is 96% of the staff are from the countries that we work in. But there's an international element as well. And maybe the most interesting answer to your to your question is to say for each of these countries to allow the people there just to rely on local resolution is not going to do the trick. And that's why we're involved. David, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much for your time and helping and helping us to get to the truth of the matter on these really complex set of issues. Thanks for your questions. And I hope people will be interested in following up. They can go to our website at rescue.org to learn more about reading the watch list, but also about what we're doing in these countries. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 